0: This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast, where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today, I am joined by a radical, a renegade, an iconoclast, whatever other rebellious sounding words you can think of. Probably my favorite historian, um, who is the author of the book, a renegade history of the United States. Thaddeus Russell, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, wow. Thank you very much.
0: Hey, you bet. So um, I want to talk about several things today, including kind of your own story, how you got into history and everything, as well as, um, you know, your book and what's in it. But to start with, so people can kind of get a flavor if they're unfamiliar with you or the book, what is your main thesis? What is kind of the main idea in a nutshell behind the book and behind your work more broadly?
1: Uh, the main argument is that people who violate social norms expand freedom for everyone. So, um, you know, every society lives according to a set of rules. Some are written law. Some are enforced by state power. Some are not. Some are just enforced by sort of moral prescriptions, right? Um, and <clears throat> in every society, pretty much, uh, there are some people who violate those norms, who live outside of them. And in doing so, they expand freedom for everyone. Now, of course, some of those norms, you know, we like and some of them we don't like. Um, The argument in my book is that many of the the norms that we now consider to be ridiculous, um, like women not being able to walk alone in public without a male chaperone (laughs) or drinking alcohol legally, um, you know, were violated by people who were at the time considered to be the lowest forms of life, you know, the scum of the earth. Um, and so, the, but at the same, by the same token, um, you know, the people who were most instrumental in, for instance, uh, making alcohol legal were gangsters. You know, they were murderers. <laughs> they were not nice people. Um, but what I'm, what I'm arguing is that we need to look at people like that um, in many cases for the origins of the freedoms we now take for granted.
0: You know, one, you of know the, one of the the other the sort other of story. strains in your book is not only that some of these people that we've typically looked down on or considered the, you know, the weirdos or the, yeah you know, the, the irreverent, the immoral have expanded freedom, but also that those who are revered, who are looked up to, who are people of high character have been like, frankly, control freaks and assholes, yeah. <laughs> assholes sometimes. Right. Um, I think that's a really powerful uh, point as well. I, I do want to. After we talk a little bit about your story, um, get into this because if when you state it the way that you just did, you know, when I asked you your main thesis, it doesn't sound that hard to get behind. And someone like me, I I kind of like you know bucking the status quo, working around things. I love you know one of the themes of this podcast is entrepreneurship, and sometimes the best entrepreneurs are the ones who are doing so uh, you know around the law. Um, whether it's, I mean, whether it's an illegal immigrant smuggling their family in to, to provide them a better life or someone, right. you know, selling something that's, you know, currently illegal, but your thesis actually goes further than that. It's, it's even people who, um, it's not just bucking the status quo, but it's sometimes things that like, I wouldn't want my children to behave this way. Like, like mm-hmm. you seem to almost praise laziness and things like that. Now mm-hmm. I teased you with that, but I actually mm-hmm. want to hold off and come back to that in a minute. Sure. <laughs> so that was a really long setup for a question that's going to come in a few minutes, but I want to start with you personally. How did you end up in academia? Why did you choose to become a historian? And then how did you kind of settle on this line of work? This, I guess I would call it revisionist history. I don't know if you would.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean any, well, any good, any good history has revisionist history, but, um, <laughs> so, um, uh, so I was born in Berkeley, California, uh, in the mid- 1965, to revolutionary socialist parents. Um, they were members of a Trotskyist organization, um, and they sort of dropped out of middle class society. Um, they had, you know, gone to the University of Chicago and Exeter Academy and UC Berkeley and, you know, were on a track to become, you know, good middle class professionals and they decided not to like <clears throat> quite a few radicals at the time it's sort of a, a great untold story not that I re- recommend doing it but it's a very it's a really interesting story that's at no one's as far as I know has really written the history of these people there are quite a few um beginning in the 1930s and then and then there was another resurgence in the 1960s and 70s like my parents of people who did this who dropped out who were sort of middle class intellectuals, and took jobs in heavy industry to organize the proletariat for revolution. So uh, my stepfather went to Exeter, and he went to uh, Chicago University of Chicago, and he became a truck driver and a steel worker. My mother went to University of Colorado and University of California. But she became a clerical worker at the university.
0: Um, and now, we doing- now a lot of people have that path, but just because they can't get a job with their degrees. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure. Not out of any sense of idealism. Yeah, this is
1: yeah, this is purely ideological. So you know, and they they joined unions or they formed unions. Um, wow. Or they, or they established, my stepfather, what he did mostly was he, was, he helped establish radical caucuses within unions, like the Teamsters. Uh, he's established, a, there was a socialist movement within the Teamsters, actually, which was a very right-wing union, actually. So that's what he did,
0: and, and they
1: did. Um,
0: and for, did you grow he, up, like, believing, kind of, you know, really embracing this ideology, or were you just sort of indifferent to it?
1: Well, I mean, to their credit, and my parents were terrible parents in all kinds of ways, but one thing I... One thing I do appreciate is, as far as I remember, they never really deliberately indoctrinated me. I don't remember any sort of speeches given to me or instructions about how to think about the world or about politics. I mean, you know, I would ask questions every once in a while. And then, of course, they would give me the line. But even then, I mean, my mother is actually... for one thing they dropped out entirely of the movement in the mm. late 1970s and, and my mother's actually a very good intellectual she's not just an ideologue but so even when they talk even when they answered my questions about politics they were fairly open-ended in the way they talked about them and fairly um, there was a lot there's a fair amount of intellectual integrity and they were kind of chafing against a lot of socialism themselves in particular and this kind of informed my ideas later in particular the puritanism of it the moralist mm. the moralistic puritanism of it which, uh, as you know, kind of is a very powerful part of my work, a very important part of my work. Um, and, you know, because they sort of embraced the good life. They embraced I mean, the material pleasures that capitalism gives us. And that, of course, didn't sit well with the comrades. So they ended up dropping out. But by the time they dropped out, I was on my way to high school. So I really, that my childhood was very much around in that world. And it also, you know, this is Berkeley in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, <laughs> That was kind of the hard left. Um, But then there was also the counterculture all around me, of course, at the time. So it was lots of hippies and lots of drugs and lots of out gays and lesbians. And my father smoked a lot of pot and grew a lot of pot and had tons of my parents divorced when I was five. And he had, you know, girlfriend after girlfriend and lots of lots of open sexuality around me. Um, So I kind of grew up very comfortable around that stuff. And then also, I lived in uh, from much of my childhood. I lived in a mostly black neighborhood. Um, it was integrated, but it was mostly black. And then the Berkeley schools were very integrated, so um, I was around a lot of black culture and became very enamored with it, which I still am. And of course, that's as you can see, is central through the book. Yeah. Um, um, so that's my that's my background. But you know, I but all three of my parents were you know intellectuals, not professionally, but they were intellectuals. My mother is a semi-professional intellectual. She's a psychoanalyst now and she does training and stuff and she writes articles, very, very sophisticated intellectual articles about psychoanalysis. But so um, that's really who I was. I, I sort of grew up around ideas and around people talking about ideas. And then if you're on the left, you know, there's only one thing to do and that's become an academic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so so you knew prop- you, you knew you had a love for ideas and it was basically yeah. if I wanna make a career out of this, I have to go be a professor. Did you did you love the process of getting your PhD and kind of being in that world or did you just sort of feel like you had to?
1: Yeah, well it was a really twisted path actually. I mean my so my parents were good intellectuals. Uh, terrible parents, though. So I had like zero guidance. Um, and, you know, they were divorced and I kind of bounced around and just almost no, um, they were just really negligent. And I was kind of left to my own devices and consequently was a terrible, terrible student all the way through school, all the way through high school, finished with a C average, which even that was an impressive accomplishment considering how spaced out I was. I actually, I tell this, story to my students now, they don't believe me, I didn't know what the SAT was when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> I, a friend of mine said, uh, we were talking about what we were doing on the weekend, and he said, oh, I'm taking the SAT on Saturday, I said, what's the SAT? <laughs> um, so it took, so I kind of dropped out after high school, and didn't drop out, sorry, but I didn't go to college right away, and I kind of hung out and smoked a lot of pot, and worked a minimum wage job and took the SAT, and I ended up going to this hippie college called Antioch College in Ohio. Which admitted every one of its applicants at the time, but um, I went there because, simply because a friend of mine told me about it, and I went there. I didn't know anything about it, um, but once I got the second I got there, I fell in love with ideas, and I took off, and I became a, I was a very good student. It was immediately clear to me that this was where I belonged in this world, um, and so from really the first week almost of being in college, I, I realized that I needed to be an academic of some sort. So that's you know and I kind of built myself up, did well in college, and then got into Columbia sort of by the skin of my teeth. Um, But I did and then established myself there and got a fellowship and ended up with a Ph.D.
0: So being at Columbia, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm assuming that you began working on this kind of story of renegades, uh, you know, during, during graduate school. Was this... I mean, this, your, your approach to history is one that ruffles a lot of feathers on all sides, all sort of political persuasions. You know, the majority of, of professors in the humanities are more kind of progressive. And you, you kind of, I don't know, call out progressivism in, in a lot of ways um, in your work. Did you run up against resistance? Was that difficult? Was that an environment that made it challenging for you, like to have unpopular ideas? Or was that not really a, an issue? <laughs>
1: So uh, I have never gotten an ad, uh, a tenure-track position. I am currently an adjunct.
0: So that answers your question. How, how uh, long have you How long have you been in in academia?
1: Yeah, uh, 20 years. Wow. Uh, yeah. So yeah. No, it's um. Well, so I was a socialist, um, of course, um, and when I started graduate school, I was still a socialist. But I really quickly realized, especially it became clear to me, like my first couple of years at Columbia. Um, that it just felt wrong. Like, I just didn't like sort of the aesthetics of people on the left. I didn't like the way they lived their lives. I didn't like the way they were really divorced from sensual pleasure and their bodies and material culture and consumerism and all these things, right? Or were hostile to it, right? Um, and it just, that wasn't me. You know, I like the good stuff.
0: Now, can I, can I hold you up for one second? Because many people, so I grew up around a lot of conservatives and if you would ask them to define a progressive, they would probably say someone who just believes in, you know, bodily pleasures and all the things that you said that they don't. Um, and this is a theme that, that reoccurs in your book, this, this, Uh, almost puritanical sort of conservatism among the progressive left. Can you give me some examples of of where you saw that and how that kind of manifests?
1: Yeah. Anyone who thinks that progressives are libertines is just doesn't know them. (laughs) Trust me. I mean, I, I've been around them literally since I was born. So, um, and I've studied them extensively for years, for decades. Um, almost universally they are puritanical. There's a few exceptions. I mean, Emma Goldman is an, exemption, ex- is an exception. A handful of yippies of the 1960s are exceptions, although even they weren't really leftists in some ways. There was sort of a Greenwich Village Bohemian scene in the 1910s and 20s. They were sort of lefties and, and definitely were interested in, in material pleasure, central pleasure. Uh, but overwhelmingly, if you look at the the who's who of the great leftists and progressives and socialists of American history, almost to a person, they are puritanical, more puritanical than any conservative I know of. Mm. Um, so that begins with the abolitionists who were like comically puritanical, and there's a whole section of my book on that, uh, <clears throat> through um, the, 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 the progressives, the original progressive movement of the 1880s to the 1910s and 20s, I mean, they were all about, disciplining immigrants and getting rid of immigrant culture and getting rid of dancing and getting rid of jazz and getting rid of drinking. They were leaders of the prohibitionist movement Um, and through the labor movement of the 1930s and 40s and 50s who were who were great upholders of the Puritan work ethic who wanted workers to manage their industries, and they understood that managing industries and managing countries required intense self-discipline, and so they upheld that. People like Walter Ruther, who was a re- great hero of the left, he upheld that consistently. Um, and then into even in the 1960s, the civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King, I have a whole chapter on this, Martin Luther King, uh, Rosa Parks, really all the, all the major leaders of the civil rights movement were tremendous um, believers in traditional... American social values. Uh, They upheld the the Protestant work ethic, family ethic. Um, They they railed against black um, drinking, drug taking, gambling, uh, sexual promiscuous sexuality, homosexuality. uh, Feminism of the nineteen. I mean, feminism is sort of well known for this. I'm not the first person to say this, but you know, feminism of the late '60s and '70s. Of course, there were many. Tremendous feminists who are heroes of mine who did not follow that line But I'd say that the the major the mainstream of feminism of second-wave feminism was really very much anti-sex Of course, this is like the major split within feminism between what are called the sex positive and sex negative feminists The the major organizations people associated with now, etc. You know, they were really very
0: much hostile to sex so I mean as a you know, I come through sort of a, a Libertarian paradigm and when when I think about these things I tend to think like The unifying the unifying principle to the extent that there is one. I mean, many people who call themselves of the left or the right just have kind of a disconnected bundle of prejudices. But to the extent that there's a unifying principle in this kind of progressive form of leftism, it's almost like anything that's good for the individual or that feels good is therefore bad for either the earth or society at large it's kind of this the individual right. versus the collective mindset yes. that we have to focus on what's good for the collective and that's basically all the things that are not good for you and and you see this i've become very radical over the years in in my approach to educating my own children we basically unschool but you see this mindset played out in the way that most people view education that like What's good for society is people who know how to do certain things and have certain um, body of knowledge that they're familiar with. And if you leave children to their own devices, they will learn literally nothing ever because learning is not fun and therefore you must force them to, right? It's this idea that all the things that are good for society as a whole um, are things that you hate doing as an individual. Uh, And that's kind of a really depressing depressing outlook. And it's kind of the opposite (laughs) of what of, of Adam Smith's insight about the beauty of markets is that even people yeah. who are pursuing their own interest can actually benefit the greater the greater um, you know s- social interest. Um, right. So I wanted to ask you speaking of markets, you have, you have this great quote in the book um, that I absolutely loved. It's the market economy uh, is always a friend of the renegade. Um, and I think that probably cuts to the heart of where you maybe diverge most in your understanding of society from maybe a traditional leftist. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on that and how did you come to, I mean, coming at, coming up as a socialist, when did you come to this realization that like, wait a minute, markets are actually the friend of the renegades and it's all, all these people that are trying to, you know, whatever, cartelize or create monopolies that are, that are the problem?
1: Yeah, it took me a long time to get there. Um, uh, let me just, I wanted to say something about this individual versus... Go ahead. ...thing. So yeah, you, you identify progressivism well. I mean your characterization of their belief in the supremacy of the community or the collective over the individual is, is uh, unmistakable. Um, do you know what the origin of that is? Where they, no. that comes from? Uh, the Bible. <laughs> this is one of the great ironies that people don't talk about. Progressivism is deeply informed by and I would say it's really an extension of early Christianity. So if you look what, what you were talking about, there's a, there's a word for that, which is asceticism. Uh, selflessness is another word for it, but it's better to call it asceticism. That's a more accurate term for it. Um, so, so
0: this would be rooted in maybe the the early sort of Puritan settlers of of this country.
1: Well, no, I'm saying it's it's from the Apostle Paul.
0: Right, but I mean because <laughs> yeah. I mean because I, I, at least in its American context, because they were very religious and they had these kind of communistic uh, yes. religious based colonies.
1: So, yeah, so to me, progressivism is it's the same moral structure as Christianity. They just take. They just take God out of it, right? They just take the metaphysical part out of it, but the moral structure is, to me, identical. So, yeah. So if you look at if you look at the New Testament, in particular if you look at the Gospel of Matthew and the book of, and the Epistle to the Romans, um, it's very clear. And this is you know, this is well known among Christian scholars. I mean, it's like asceticism is the idea that one must sacrifice one's own individual desires and freedoms for. God and God's community, God's people, right? Yep. Um That is that is the central tenet of Christianity, and this is that's not a controversial statement, right? Um, and so, what the pro- what progressives did in the beginning, in the late nineteenth century, although it even predates it, you know, sort of in the, with abolitionism too, but certainly in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, they they just replaced God with the state and the nation, hmm. um, and so they said that we must you know, sacrifice our own individual desires and freedoms for the United States or for New York City or for, you know, or or here's the, here's the best one, or the people. Right? <laughs> um, that's what's often said.
0: Right? Which, so, you know, all the arguments that an atheist would make against, you know, the existence of God, or at least against the ability to prove the existence of God, you could make the same against, you know, the existence of this abstraction called, you know, the people, right?
1: Yeah. And these, then,
0: these collective
1: and then, in the, yeah, and then in the late last 50 years, or yeah, 50 years, uh, it's also been for the Earth, right? So that's right. that is that is central within environmentalism. They hate no one hates consumerism more than your typical environmentalist, and they really, really despise us for using things that give us pleasure, give us leisure, give us freedom, that might you know, impinge on the pristine nature of the earth.
0: Now, um, so, it's Christianity. Oh, absolutely. Well, so so let me ask you something. You seem to take, I, I, I guess, let me sort of reframe it this way. There are, I know a lot of people who are um, who are Christian or whether or not they're Christian, maybe they're environmentalists, um, and they believe that some of the things you talked about, uh, denying yourself, being altruistic, being frugal, um, you know, being disciplined and working hard and et cetera, they also believe that those are good things, maybe even the highest good, but there are some who believe it's counterproductive and or immoral to attempt to coerce people into those behaviors. And so that right. these, are, these are good behaviors, but they have to be freely chosen by the individual. And, and you, I mean, you don't explicitly contradict this, but your book definitely gives the impression that you're actually going further than that and you're actually saying like, no, hard work isn't really good. Laziness is better (laughs) or like, you know, voluntarily choosing to be sober is like selling out your freedom. Give me, give me, I guess we'll put it this way. Would you say that, you know, on an individual level, freely choosing to, you know, be sober, to uh, work hard, to sort of discipline yourself or to, to be charitable, to, to withhold, you know, the, the enjoyment of luxuries in order to help other people or whatever it might be. Would you say that that is a bad mindset or is it only destructive to sort of social freedom and prosperity when it becomes enforced through, through coercive means?
1: Um, well, I think it's, it's always very useful to explain what the Puritan work ethic is, right? People don't get very confused about it. And so the Puritan work ethic is the belief that one should work hard And well no matter what one gains from it right that work in itself is a virtue Um, that it it is not a means to an end right you gain from it you should work you should work hard and so that's that's this moral belief that is at the center of American culture and has been since the Puritans got here
0: which seems so Um, counter to like the 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 natural human experience that like I'm always amazed how powerful an idea like that how many people so willingly accept it but yeah. but, but go ahead yeah,
1: exactly. yeah so now what i'm what i'm not saying is that that is wrong <laughs> right if you want to believe that that's your business you know i can't tell you there's no way to prove that that's wrong um, i i can prove that you may Live a pretty unhappy life if you do that. Um, but uh, I'm not even sure about that. I mean, I think there have been a lot of people who have submitted to that idea, have committed themselves to a life of hard work and poverty. And, you know, I think if you ask them, they say, that's what I wanted. You know, I mean, there are, that's what monks do. Well, that's fine. I mean, if, if you want to be a monk, then that's what you should do. Um, so it's just that there have been many people who have viewed work differently. You know, um, as simply a means to an end. Now, so what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that laziness is always good. I mean, if you're always lazy and never, never work at all, you're also going to live a life of poverty unless you're (laughs) born into wealth. So that's just sort of obvious, right? Um, What... So the slaves had, to me, the the most health, the healthiest view of work, or the one that's closest to mine, anyway, which is that it's simply a means to an end. Of course, slaves had a lot a lot of reasons to view work that way. Um, so, you know, that's when you should. So you should simply decide, case by case, you know, when you should work and how hard you should work and what you'll gain from it. But judge it by what you will gain from it, not whether or not it's good in itself. That just that's right. It's it's sort of a more it's a moral claim. Yeah. Think that I think consigns people to lives they often don't. Well,
0: so here's an there's an interesting there there's an interesting I think surface level uh, contradiction, but I actually don't think it's a contradiction between what you're saying and many of the themes that that I write about and that we might talk about on this podcast other times, which is this idea of living a fulfilled life and not not seeing, um, work as something that inherently sucks, trying to find something that you love that sort of makes you come alive. And, and this idea of, you know, a lot of people, it's very trendy now to talk about like getting into a flow state, which involves, you know, overcoming some sort of challenge. So if you're a writer, I mean, you wrote this book, I'm sure you had times where it was hard work, but it was very fulfilling to be writing the book. And I think that it, it, it may be interpreted as, okay, you know, Thaddeus is sort of saying that like work is only a means of generating income. But but saying it's a means to an end is broader than it's just a means to generate income because income itself, the value of it is that it lets us have other pleasures. And so I think seeing work as a means actually helps us potentially find work that's more enjoyable um, in and of itself as well. Because if, if the work itself is bringing us some kind of pleasure, right? I guess it's counter to this idea that the more you hate it, somehow the more moral it is. Um, and so whether, whether it's, I just want to do as little as possible of work that I hate so that I can have money and free time, or I want to find work that I don't hate because there's nothing moral about hating what you do. I think both of those can kind of, can kind of jive with this, um, you know, this, this questioning of the, of the Puritan work ethic. I don't know. Would you, would you agree or disagree with that?
1: Yeah. So asceticism and Puritanism is about sacrifice, right? You're giving up something, you're giving up something that you want. (laughs) Um, so um, now work can be both vocation and simultaneously avocation, right? There's no question that some people enjoy the work that they do. I enjoyed writing much of the time. I enjoyed
0: writing that book. Yes. I'm a, I'm a um, hedonistic worker. <laughs> I try to only, yes. I try to only do work that I actually love as much as possible. Yeah. And so again, like, it's not about
1: like moralizing against those people, workaholics or people who love their work or saying they're wrong you know, that have some sort of false consciousness that's incredibly arrogant. That's something that leftists do all the time, which I can't stand. Um, no, it's simply it's simply attacking the idea that it's a moral good in itself. That's all. Mm. Um, and once we do that, we're liberated to
0: find our own way, right? Absolutely. That's all. Absolutely. No, I, I, I find that very powerful. And, and it's, I think it's subtle in some ways and it's hard to grasp because the way that you go about this in, in your book It's a different, it's a different approach to the narrative than most of us, myself included, are used to. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess I would put it this way. There's, there's very few books or ideas that really like shatter the fundamental assumptions. And I consider myself kind of a a radical, a fan of iconoclasm and all this stuff. Um, but still your book, you know, it sort of forces you to rethink a lot of things, just the way in which, um, particularly, and and let's move on to this topic, particularly abolitionism and slavery. Since moving down to Charleston, I'm from Michigan originally. And since moving down to Charleston four years ago, I've sort of had a a reinvigorated interest in the history of the South. And I just realized being here that I didn't know anything about it. The stuff I was taught that just was common, sort of supposedly common knowledge up in Michigan in the Midwest about what the South was like, you know, before slavery, what it's like today, or I mean, before the civil war, what it's like today. It's, it's completely wrong. And I, I was like, (laughs) like, I honestly was shocked to discover that there were like monuments to, uh, you know, Confederate soldiers and that like people weren't tearing them down and that, you know, the black community wasn't like lighting them on fire and stuff. I mean, I just, I wouldn't have believed that that was possible in the North. You wouldn't dare ever mention such a thing. And it, and then I, I discovered a book, uh, which I think you actually re- uh, referenced the work of, of Genovese, uh, Roll Jordan Roll by Eugene Genovese. Is that, I don't even know. Genovese. Yeah, Gen- yeah Gen- Genovese. Genovese. Yeah. Um, and it had so much content in there, the way that uh, slaves as well as um, plantation owners, as well as just you know free whites, described culture in the South. It was so it didn't fit any paradigm I had of good and evil. People in the South were supposed to be evil because they supported slavery. Slaves were supposed to be oppressed and hungry for freedom. And people in the North were the great liberators, right? And this is not the story at all. So I think probably maybe the most radical, challenging thing in your book is, is the way that you describe that institution, just slavery and race more, more generally. Um, so maybe, I, I guess we'll, we'll do this. For the people who haven't read it, give me a nutshell of just that aspect of your work and then we can discuss some, uh, some of the implications there of, you know, what slavery was like um, and kind of the, the way that the story has been misconstrued.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So what I do is I start with, and this is necessary, but no historian I know has ever done this. Start with white culture, do, the dominant white culture um, of the North um, at the time of, you know, the antebellum period. And by the way, no one knows much at all about American slavery before the 19th century just because there isn't much in terms of sources. Um, so if you look, um, a lot of people don't realize this, You know, more than 90% of what's been written um, in terms of scholarship about slavery in, this, in the American South is about the period of about 1800 to 1860. Wow. So that's, And in fact, it's even narrower. It's probably more like 1820, 30, 40. Um, most of what we have in terms of sources is from that period. So it's very narrow. But um, but anyway, that's what we have. Um, so look, look at, what I do is I look at what the dominant white culture was at that time, right? The, the culture outside the plantation, right? Start with what was outside the plantation. And we've talked about it already. You know, the Puritan work ethic was um, central. It was powerful. It was dominant. It was pervasive. It was taught in... It was taught in children's textbooks. It was taught to children who were four, five, six years old. They were taught that toys were bad, play was bad, that work was good, that their life was uh, should be devoted to learning how to become and, good. And this, and this
0: was very deliberate. Like the founding fathers, almost universally were like disgusted by most Americans, especially the ones who lived in cities, and were like deliberately right. trying to kind of create and craft this new sort of aesthetic man.
1: Right. So you have. So you have pure, at this moment, you know, the first half of the 19th century, what you have in the United States is a convergence of Puritanism so from the 17th century with Victorianism, which is ascendant beginning in the 1830s. Victoria uh, rises to the crown, takes the the throne in in the 1830s, and that's very powerful here. So, um, many historians and many Europeans have written about this and commented on it, and there's a general agreement that American, the dominant American white culture of that period, was probably the most repressive culture in world history. <laughs> but it was it was comically repressive. So there were. Um, During that time, a very popular thing was to write about the evils of sex and sexuality and masturbation, how it made you go blind and made you grow hair on your palms and gave you epilepsy and all these things. This is when the
0: women's swimsuits were like suits of armor that you would drown in if you got in the water.
1: Oh, this is even before swimsuits (laughs) (laughs) were even contemplated. Yeah, um, the idea of leisure didn't exist. Um, there just simply was no concept that people should have leisure at all. That people should have any time off from work. The idea of a weekend didn't exist. There was no weekend. That did not exist in antebellum America. Um, there were there were whole industries devoted to um, producing uh, mechanism machines, mechanisms to stop people from masturbating, like. Uh, Chain mail mitts for men and clamps for women uh, that kept their legs together. Um, it was really, I mean, now it's sort of comical, but I mean, if you think about it, it's really awful what people were put through. Um, and so, you know, and people were just told that, that they must work all the time. And consequently, they did, especially American farmers, right? Most, the vast majority of Americans in that period. White Americans were farmers and subsistence farmers. Um, and people don't understand what it means to, to be a farmer. What it means, above all, is work. People work constantly, because you have to. to. To produce something out of soil um, that will, you know, will produce enough to make to have your family survive or to sell it on the market just requires nonstop work. And that's what we see this again and again and again in the diaries of farmers from that period. They just talk about how they work all the time. Um, So it was just a phenomenally repressive culture, and here's the thing about slavery that people just missed, (laughs) and this is not excusing it, this is not defending it, this is not saying it was a good thing, this is not saying anything kind about the masters, I never say one kind word about the masters, I have nothing kind to say about them, but here's what it did, and this was totally unintended, no one intended this, but this is what it did. It kept those people who were slaves completely separate from that repressive culture. And it allowed them to form their own distinctive culture outside of those dominant, repressive norms. So they brought with them from West Africa a different set of ideas, or in some cases just a lack of idea. There just simply wasn't the Puritan work ethic in West Africa. There was no belief outside of Northern Europe and the United States that work in itself was godly. No one believed that, so the slaves didn't have it. They didn't think that sex in itself was, was evil. They didn't think that sex outside of marriage was terrible. They didn't think that women who had sex outside of marriage were degraded whores. Um, they had, it's not that they were just, you know, freewheeling libertines, but they had looser, um, norms about sexuality and war. Um, well, people just don't, don't understand. They don't, they don't ever connect those two things. Why did those people create jazz and blues and rock and roll? Uh, Why did those people create this whole lexicon of slang, which is now central in American English, that we all use, that, you know, it's about breaking rules? Why why was it those people who were slaves? There must be something, I thought, about the institution of slavery and the culture of slaves that explains that, and there it is. So they were physically separated. They weren't allowed to become citizens. They weren't allowed to take responsibility for this country. They weren't ever expected to internalize those repressive norms. When you were born white in America in 1830, they, from the minute you were born, pretty much, they did everything they could to make you internalize these ideas about sex and work. It wasn't the case with slaves. They understood that there was no way to get these people to internalize those norms because they were kept apart. Hmm. Right? And so that explains why black culture generally, generally, and working-class black culture, Generally operated outside of, and still to much to a great degree, still operates outside those norms, and that's why they've given us so many things that we all cherish now.
0: You know, one of the kind of corollaries to this, or, or something connected to it, um, is the notion of of democracy, which today, you know, if you go to a typical, like, I don't know, political science class or something, or just in, in common conversation, people, people use the term democracy, kind of, they interchange it with freedom. They're like, oh yeah, you know, we've, we've got a democracy and it's the implications sort of, therefore we're free or countries that struggle well, they need better, you know, democratic institutions. And one of the things you talk a lot about is what democracy is really like and in, in the founding era, this idea that like to be a citizen in a democracy, you basically have to forego all pleasures and you have to be an obedient, you know, good citizen. And again, this collectivist idea to contribute to the, to the democracy, to the state, you've got to, you know, forego all these things that would be good for you. And you see that again with the end of slavery in a lot of the, the, the push for sort of how do we now integrate these free blacks into this democratic society? How do we basically make them stop enjoying themselves so much and start sort of taking on the, the duties of democracy? Um, you actually say one of your quotes that I pulled from the book, democracy is the enemy of, of personal freedom. And that's, that's a pretty radical and powerful quote. So give me, give me a little bit, just riff a bit, if you will, on democracy um, and maybe why it's not such a wonderful thing that everyone assumes.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's two ways to do it. One is to think about making, making an institution now that's not democratic-democratic and thinking what the implications are of that. And the second one is to look at the founders of democracy in the United States, the founding fathers, so, and what they actually said about it. So what I do with my students is I say, let's start here, let's start in this classroom. Let's right now, this class is a dictatorship. I say I can decide what your grades are. I can kick you out of the class. I decide what is taught. I decide what you read. So the, they
0: do what, have the exit option and they opted in. So there is the, the, you have some limit to how far you can go before you lose them all.
1: Yeah. But I mean, in terms but of, yeah, yes.
0: once they're there, right.
1: Yeah, so I say, okay, so that's, we agree that's basically what this is. It, well, it's certainly not a democracy, right? Sure. They, they have the market exit, that's right, but they don't have democratic, it's not, it's not a, dem, they don't have dem, democratic control. Um, so I said, let's, what if we made this a democracy, a truly, and not a representational democracy, a truly, you know, direct democratic uh, class? I say to them, what's, what's the first thing you should do? And they're sure, like, uh, and scratching their heads. I said well here's the first thing you should do you should cancel the rest of your life because you're going to have to all get PhDs in American history first before we <laughs> begin to talk about this class then you're going to have to write the syllabus then you're going to have to decide what books are on it you're going to have to then you're going to have to grade the papers you're going to have to assign the papers you're going to have to give the lectures you're going to have to do all these things that I've spent the last 20 years doing right it's a tremendous amount of work <laughs> that's what democracy is. It's taking responsibility, right? That's what democracy is. It's government by the people. Well, governments work. Government's not just sitting on a throne and and watching, you know, society sort of miraculously govern itself. It's 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 all work. It's responsibility. Um, and so the founding fathers understood that, and that's what the, it's one of the things they very much liked about it. They hated that Americans in the in the colonies were drinking like fish, were fornicating all the time, that prostitution was rampant, uh, that interracial sex was rampant, that people were slacking off on the job in the cities in particular. Um, and they said, the reason that's happening, the reason for that libertine culture, the founding father said, not Thaddeus Russell, John Adams said, <laughs> was that it was a monarchy. That it was not a democracy because the people had no sense of responsibility. They had no real responsibility for their society. The king and his minions did all the work, right? So what we have to do, the founding fathers said, was put into these people responsibility for their society. That will force them to stop drinking and fornicating in the streets. And they were right. Now, I mean, to an extent, they were. They were right that that's what democracy is. The fact that we still have quite a bit of drinking and fornicating simply to me suggests that we don't have a complete democracy.
0: (laughs) You know, the the interesting, you present this kind of contrast between monarchy um, or in an even more extreme case, slavery and democracy. And I think you can look at both of them and you can say, based on the incentives therein, okay, well, if. My ability to uh, either suffer or profit from sort of my own decisions is limited, uh, particularly in the, in the instance of slavery. I'm going to basically just carve out maximum personal freedom as much as I can get away with and just enjoy myself sort of in the short term. And in the case of a democracy, if I am forced, my ability to enjoy myself is limited dramatically. And I'm actually forced to take part in this grand social responsibility. Um, I'm not going to have very much fun. And I think what's interesting is is how markets sort of allow people with either inclination to express them in their own way. I, I like to use the example of if you if you made a, a grocery store, if they stocked their shelves based on a democratic process, if they let everyone within fifty miles vote on what should be you know, stocked in the shelf, or if if worse yet, if they made them vote and no one could stock the shelves until the voters told them how to do it, how inefficient that would be, how unhappy it would be. We'd all be like trying to make people feel guilty that they weren't studying, you know, baked beans enough to decide which kinds should be stocked, et cetera. It's terrible. Um, But it's also terrible when you have, you know, one sole provider who says, I'm the dictator, I'm putting on the shelf whatever I want, and it's illegal for you to shop elsewhere. And I think markets provide this great sort of mixture of the two, those who really want to be informed and run campaigns, trying to educate consumers to not purchase this or whatever, they can do whatever they want. And if people want to, they can follow them. Um, but you kind of have, we all get to be self-interested and in our own way. And we're not forced to either be really responsible and, and puritanical or told, Hey, look, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to call a shot to the end of the day anyway. So you might as well eat drink because tomorrow you die. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the truly the truly democratic person uh, has not a minute of right because there's always something to do for the community. <laughs> there's always something to think about, to some meeting to go to, some planning to be made, some something, some service to be given. Right? There's always something to do.
0: Do, do you uh, think that America was was or would be? And again, you can't. You know, no no one knows what this would look like, but better under the British monarchy. <laughs>
1: um, well, so that's the first thing they train us in in graduate school in history: they to never to never be counterfactual. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I don't. I just
0: or, or maybe you know. put it this way: put it this way without without getting into counterfactuals. Let's say before the, the the fifty years or whatever before the American Revolution, and the fifty years after, do you think the average American fared better under the monarchy than they did? Um, you know, give, given. to to the extent that you could hold things somewhat equal. I know there were technological advances and things that might have changed their lives, but do you think they fared better under one than the other?
1: Well, it depends on what your values are so as to what's better. But, you know, I mean, so so there's no argument among historians that I'm aware of that the period after the revolution, um, not just the 50 years, but really the 100 years, was, as I said, you know, comically repressive. The culture of America was comically repressive. The same. By the same token, they built a hell of a lot of bridges <laughs> and railroads, right, um, and the telegraph, et cetera, which were great. I'm really glad we have those things. Um, but if you look at the culture of American cities in the colonies, um, and not all of this was great. I'm sure they were filthy. I know they were filthy. Um, and not, you know, the fact that people were drinking on the job and having sex in the streets, you know was kind of good, and not so good. I mean, it's a mix, right? But I'm just saying that there were, there were tremendous personal freedoms that were sacrificed for the nation and for democracy. That's
0: all. Do you think, okay, so I, one time I, I saw, I think you posted on Facebook. Um, you said something about, I think you were visiting, uh, the South. Um, and you said something to the effect of the South is less racist than the North. Um, oh, yeah. could you expound on that sentiment? I mean, to most people that would, that would come across as very shocking. Um, g- give, me, give me an explanation yeah. what you mean by that. I mean, well, you I mean, I, I mean, so, I, I, agree with you. I never would yeah. have before I lived here, but I'd love to hear you sort of explain for yeah, those mean, who are unfamiliar.
1: I mean, I find it, I can't imagine anyone who, who visits the South and really visits the South, doesn't just go to the tourist spots, you know, would disagree with me. Um, I spent a fair amount of time in Savannah. My ex-wife was from there. I was married in Savannah, and then I did a lot of research in the South. My project sort of in between this book and the last book was on the civil rights movement. So I did a, spent a fair amount of time in Birmingham and Mississippi and um, Georgia and Atlanta. And I just, the first thing, I was, and I wasn't expecting this. I was like you, I didn't know. I was a total Northerner. Um, but the, one of the first things I, I noticed, and I was struck by it, was how integrated public spaces were compared to the North, that you just saw blacks and whites hanging out together. In restaurants together, you see many more blacks and whites sitting at the same table in a restaurant in the South than you do in the North. Um, and I just, you know, and there was a sort of like an ease that uh, between blacks and whites that you just don't see in the North. Um, you know, uh, does that mean <laughs> there isn't sort of white paternalistic racism in the South? Oh yeah, it's there. I mean, I was around them. I was around whites who were who had a totally paternalistic attitude toward blacks, um, but. There is, there is this ease between, I hate using a term, but between the races, you know, um, in the South. Um, and so, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the, one, of the, one, of the re, one of the main reasons the abolitionists want, wanted to go to war against the South was they wanted to remake it in the image of the North. They wanted to remake it into a northern, uh, into a northern culture. Um, and they hated the fact that Southerners, black and white, didn't have the Protestant work ethic. Mm. They hated that. Um, and it, they it is to.
0: definitely true down here. Um, yeah. doing, doing business in the South is just different. People are yeah. slower. They have the less of this feeling that like, if you're not hustling, uh, you know, working to the bone, then there's something wrong with you. It's, it is a definite, there's definitely a different culture in regards to work.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so that's a mixed bag, right? I mean, that meant that they didn't have railroads for a long time. <laughs> uh, and it means now it's probably harder to get things done and it's probably, they have, their infrastructure is not quite as good, et cetera, right? Um, but it's also really pleasant. Yeah, <laughs> it's really pleasant. So, so my my position is, um, if you're interested in the leisure of the South, don't and things like that. Don't don't become a CEO. What you want is markets. You want you want CEOs. You want businesses. You want in, uh, uh, businesses competing against each other for your money right? That's what you want. You don't want to run the damn thing. You want them to run things for you. It's the same argument as with democracy. You want to stay out of sovereignty, whether it's economic sovereignty or political sovereignty. Mm. Sovereignty is what sucks if you're interested in the good life. Mm.
0: Right? Talk, talk a little bit about um, the, the end of slavery and, and in particular, the civil rights movement um, and ways that, you know, you said some of that was sort of some of these leaders essentially trying to encourage blacks to become more white or to become more uh, puritanical in some ways. Um, give me give me a, a, an example of that or, or sort of, I guess, where that maybe stands today in your mind in, in kind of the, the black community and some of the figureheads who sort of speak out for, for the modern, I guess, civil rights movement. Right.
1: Yeah, so the word is assimilationism, and that's a, as you know, that's a major theme in the book. Um, And every marginalized group in this country has gone through an assimilationist process, um, led mostly from the top, from within the groups. So self appointed leaders have instructed, cajoled, coerced their constituents to adopt the norms of the dominant culture uh, in order to gain full citizenship. So this predates um, the civil rights movement very much. I mean, so if you look at immigrant groups, and I have chapters on the Irish and the Italians and the Jews, they all did this in the 19th century and the early 20th century. When those groups got here, uh, they were considered to be not white, because not because of the color of their skin, obviously, but because they didn't act like white people in America. <laughs> they didn't think that work in itself was good and... They didn't live in nice, tidy nuclear families, um, and they had different sexual norms, um, uh, and they were discriminated against. Consequently, and so the leaders of those groups uh, told their people, uh, beginning with the Irish in the 1840s and 50s, you know, we've got to stop dancing, stop fornicating, we got to work hard. The Irish were known for blowing up projects that they were working on, like canal digging, <laughs> more often than they were for working on them hard and for drinking like fish while they were <laughs> doing these things. Um, and and we've get, and also distanced ourselves from blacks, right? Because these groups all, when they moved here, they were poor, so they lived in black neighborhoods, right? So they became closely associated with blacks in every way. The, the leaders of those groups all said, you know, we got to stop doing all this stuff and we've got to start acting like good wasps. Um, <laughs> And they did. And so the Irish in the 1830s and 40s were considered to be chimpanzees or black. There was sort of a debate among uh, the sophisticated classes in the United States as, as to whether the Irish were simian or African. But they they, there was no question they were, they were not white um, as of the 1830s. By the 20th century, they were considered to be not just white, but Nordic white, um, the, the elite, the creme de la creme. Mm. Same thing happened with Italians and Jews later. Um, so that's, that's called assimilationism, and that's what the Civil Rights Movement did. I mean, which really begins with abolitionism. Abolitionists, you know, hated slave culture, despised it. It's thought the slaves were having entirely too much fun dancing and partying on the plantations, uh, which was exaggerated. It wasn't entirely false, obviously, but it was, it was exaggerated, but they hated slave culture and they wanted to make slaves into good white uh, New Englanders. Um, and that's what, that's what Reconstruction very much was. It was an attempt to train the slaves to become like whites. So they established about 2,000 schools through the Freedmen's Bureau across the South and most slaves went through those schools and they didn't just teach them reading, writing and arithmetic. They also taught them moral values. Um, very stern puritanical moral values and that, that continued with the advent of the early civil rights movement um, in the turn of the century but then really took off after World War II with the period of Martin Luther King and the, what we now think of as the civil rights movement. Uh, King, very similarly, hated black culture he did not, Martin Luther King did not mention the word jazz until the 1960s he didn't didn't come out of his mouth. He had nothing good to say about working class black culture. And in fact, he had a lot of bad things to say about it. So he gave lots of sermons in the 1950s to black audiences about how terrible black people were, that they were drinking too much. They were fornicating too much. They were taking drugs too much. They weren't working hard enough. Um, You know, it's the same story as the immigrants. You know, Uh,
0: this, this, it's an amazing uh, repeated story in a lot of different places in history. This idea that, you know, Hey guys, if we don't, if we don't start behaving more like our oppressors, they won't respect us. (laughs) Right. It's, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a bizarre, like, I don't know. It's like a lack of, of, you know, self-confidence or something, a desire to be seen as, to be taken seriously, to be seen as, as normal. Um, I don't know where it stems from, but it's,
1: Well, I do. I mean, it's it's understandable. I mean, it's you know there was a thing called Jim Crow and there was a thing called lynching and you know these things really happened to them and it was largely because their culture did diverge. So I understand it. I don't I don't judge it. Um, It's just that it's what I want us to understand is the high costs of it of assimilationism. That's what people don't ever think about. They think it's just a great thing that Martin Luther King wore a business suit. And at least publicly presented this squeaky clean image. We know privately it wasn't, but, you know, publicly at least, they all did. Um, well, what, you know, is that is that really what we want everyone to be like? I mean, do we really want everyone to be Barack Obama? Barack Obama's the apotheosis of this, by the way. I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the culmination of it. Um, so, um You know, there's a tremendous cost to it. Now, the good thing, the good news is that while blacks were going through this assimilationist, this about 150-year assimilationist project, which isn't over by the way, but all during that period, guess what whites are doing? (laughs) They're (laughs) they're moving toward black culture, right? So now, not entirely, and we still have a long way to go. But you know, beginning with the early blackface minstrels, yeah, who were not contrary to popular opinion, anti-black, but really loved black culture and were imitating it because they admired it and desired it. Um, through all the whites who played in jazz bands in the early 19, 20th century, and then, of course, rock and roll was the black creation that whites flocked to. And then, of course, all the black vernacular slang that whites well, all use. Well, you know, use. and I guess, and, it, and I guess, you know,
0: no, I yeah. guess that's what I was kind of getting at. I, I didn't mean to say before that there was no, I could see no rationale for saying, hey, let's like, you know, try to be more white, um, because you know, the, the natural thing is if we behave more this way, we'll we won't be, you know, persecuted with these horrible laws and things. But I almost feel in the longer term. That kind of approach that sort of any, any, I don't know, minority group has, it almost takes away their greatest asset, right? Because in a sense, no matter how much you try to be like white people, there's a sense in which like you'll never be as good at being white as they are. And to, to, to get rid of some of the best, I guess, wow. advantages to say- look, there are some really unique things that are incredibly attractive to the dominant culture about our culture. And I guess not not foregoing those in this in this effort to, you know, to gain. Well, I actually
1: think it is effective. I mean, I don't like it, but I think assimilationism has been proven to be effective. Look who the president is. (laughs) You know, I mean, so do some people but but would you problem.
0: but would you not agree that also the ones who the the, the people who have continued to sort of uh, rebelliously i guess keep you know in hip hop culture jazz etc they have also done a lot for assimilation because more and more white people have said hey that's pretty cool i like that and
1: and no that's not a, that's not assimilation right right that's,
0: it's not but it's it's the dominant culture right but it, but it's a yeah. it's a strategy for reducing the the oppression oh, yeah. right a, yeah, a different right. strategy yeah.
1: yeah so that's what i counsel that's okay what I counsel. okay yeah, exactly. So that's my politics. It's about making the dominant culture adjust, not adjust, but they have so much, in many cases, not all cases, but in, certainly in the black case, you know, there's so much that was attractive yeah. to whites that that changed the culture, the dominant culture, because it was attractive. So if you ta- I always say to my students, you know, like imagine, imagine the United States without there ever having been a black person here. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and, then, and then take out the gays. Right, and then and then take out the Jews, and then take out the Italians, and like, what are you left with? I mean, this is not a place. I don't know,
0: cinderblock cells. I
1: mean, (laughs) Yosemite was about the only thing I'd have left to look forward to. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, so every one of those cultures, not just black, but they've 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 offered something to the dominant culture that was attractive. Mm -hmm. Um, that changed the dominant culture.
0: Okay, so I know we're very short on time. I'm going to hit you with a couple really quick, sort of rapid fire questions. Um, first, I had several people uh, when I said I was going to interview you ask me this. Do you identify with any sort of political ideology, left or right? Mm,
1: yeah, no. I mean, sort of. Well, <laughs> I said this recently. Here's, here's what I know um, leftists call me a libertarian and libertarians call me a (laughs) (laughs) leftist. I mean, I obviously am very close to libertarianism in a lot of ways, you know, and I've learned a lot from libertarians, especially in the last five or six years. And, you know, I write a lot for reason. That's my main gig right now as a freelancer outside of teaching. And, um, um, but I also have some differences with libertarians. You know, I, I think that the non-aggression principle is a bad idea. Um, and I think that, but more importantly, I think the bigger problem, but then the NAP doesn't really bother me. But what bothers me about libertarianism is that much, not all of it, but much of it is informed by the classical liberal self idea of the self-regulating individual, which is, which is, which is, um, overlaps considerably with Puritanism, yeah. right? It's the, the idea that that we should regulate ourselves so that the state shouldn't have to which is a, it's a, smart i mean i get i get the argument it sure. um, logically makes sense it's just that you know they they tend to Many of them, I'd say, right libertarians in particular, tend to sort of veer into moralizing about these things So personal responsibility, and becomes really the puritan work ethic.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. And then they
1: also, go ahead. And they're big on that. They're big on the nuclear family. And again, I'm not anti, I'm not saying that no one should be in a nuclear family. I'm saying that we shouldn't moralize about it one way or the other. We shouldn't say that the only way to be happy is to be in a nuclear family. Um, but a lot of right libertarians do. I mean, my friend Tom Woods. I mean, he's great. And I. I have respect for him. And I don't, he's not wrong, but he's one of those people, right? He's typical of that. So it,
0: there's a strain uh, in there that I, that I find troubling as well. This, it's this idea yeah. that, um, well, we can only, not, we can only have Liberty once we're moral enough to handle it. And I actually think that's, that's a, that's right. a really a, a erroneous and, and dangerous, right? Like people aren't, aren't more moral right. today than they were a couple hundred years ago. Yet we don't have slavery because we have a different institutional setting.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, and so I mean, and they they sort of miss the sort of big argument of my book, right? <laughs> Just right. that people who, people who were undisciplined um, uh, are the ones who created so many freedoms for us, right? The libertarians um, champion. So
0: I've heard people say that you only uh, you spend all your time calling out left wing hypocrisy, but not yeah. not that on the right. What, what's your response?
1: So totally, guilty as charged. <laughs> Here's why. Because I'm surrounded by people who attack Fox News all day long. It's like, there's no shortage of that. It's, it's too no, easy.
0: Yeah,
1: and it's too easy. These are these are mostly knuckleheads. I mean, it's not difficult to, like, complain about Bill O'Reilly. And so I just get very tired of all, the. you know, and I am I live in a progressive world, right? Yep. I, I live in Los Angeles. So I used to live in New York City. I'm an academic. I'm in the media world. I mean, that's everyone. I don't know a Republican. I don't know as far as. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know a registered Republican. Um, and so it's, it's easy, it's boring, and everyone's doing it, attacking with right wing. The, almost no one is doing what I'm doing, which is attacking the left from the particular position I'm in, which is a sort of whatever you want to call it, left libertarian position. So pointing out how the left is actually conservative in many ways without knowing it, that's what almost no one's doing, and that's what I try to do.
0: All right, I'm going to ask you two final questions. You can answer them however you like. First, what's the biggest misunderstanding people have about you or your work? And second, what are you working on next?
1: (laughs) Biggest misunderstanding? God, where do I begin with that one? I mean, (laughs) God, I mean, it's every day they have a misunderstanding about me. I don't know.
0: Do do people uh, assume that because you you write about the renegades that you must be just like constantly, you know, drunk and high uh, all the time?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some of that. I, I don't care about that. I mean, whatever. Yeah, I, so I'm, I, um, I've never, first of all, I've never once claimed to be a renegade personally. Um, so i am not, there's nothing at stake here for me. I've never, um, I, you know, I live sort, semi, somewhat a conventional bourgeois life and somewhat not. I mean, I'm divorced. I live, I'm not married now. I live with my girlfriend I have a son. We share custody with him. Um, I don't. I stopped drinking three years ago. Um, you know, I did a lot of drinking before then. I don't do any now. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty. I'm fairly conventional. I, you know, but intellectually, I'm definitely a renegade. I mean, I think my ideas are certainly not conventional in any way. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's you know, I get all kinds of accusations about being a defender of slavery or being a defender of corporations or working for the Koch brothers or (laughs) whatever. I mean, you know, and then libertarian, I mean, well, libertarians understand me a little bit better, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, whatever I am is who I am. I don't know what to say. It's like, it's not, you know, it's a mix of
0: things. No, that's, that's what I find. So, uh, so enjoyable. And so, so thought provoking, what are you working on next?
1: yeah, what I'm working on next, I'm working on now is um, it's it's um, an extension of the renegade argument to American foreign policy. Um, not just foreign policy, but America in the world, sort of it's an international um, history, renegade history. so i'm looking at I'm looking at um, the influence of American low, low popular culture across the world beginning in the late 19th century so like the diffusion of jazz in the Philippines after the Spanish-American War and mm. Hollywood in the 1920s and Nazi Germany and but it goes on and on i mean those are just examples um and you know how how those things how american renegade popular culture subverted authoritarian regimes abroad um at the same time that and this is classically libertarian argument, um, that American military interventions strengthened those authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm.
0: This is such fascinating stuff, Thaddeus. I hope to bring you back again, because there is so much in your book we didn't even get to. I'm going to do a whole episode on the New Deal and sort of the modern progressive movement, and I would love to do that uh, another time, but the book is A Renegade History of the United States. Thaddeus Russell, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Isaac.